Welcome to our podcast called Versed with Scott Tittle, a Viam Capital podcast, where we will be interviewing leaders in the long-term care sector who are shaping the future of the profession. We'll be discussing issues top of mind to them so our listeners can be even more well-versed as they tackle their day. This podcast is powered by Viam Capital, a new national financial services firm focused exclusively on providing capital solutions to the seniors' housing and healthcare sectors. For more information, you can find us at viamcapital.com. I'm your host, Scott Siddle. This is Versed. We'd like to welcome to this episode of our Versed podcast, Steve Fogg, Chief Financial Officer at Marquee Companies and Consonus Healthcare. Hey, Steve, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a real honor to have you today. Before we get started into our, our major topic, I'd like for our listeners to get to know more about you and your company and, and really your family, because it's an incredibly inspiring story. Tell us about your family's history with the sector and a little bit about your company and then your role at your various various companies there as well. Well, as you introed with me, I'm the current chief financial officer of our organization. We uh, operate under three brands. Marquee Companies is our facility brand. Consanus Healthcare is our long-term care pharmacy and long-term care therapy services brand. And then we have AgeRight, which is our population health uh, or value-based care brand. So both myself and my brother, Phil Jr., current board chair of American Healthcare Association, are fourth-generation operators here in the state of Oregon. Our great-grandmother uh, operated the first nursing home in the state of Oregon in 1946. We have grown in the industry and now have fifth generation as well working under us as well. So uh, we've been doing it for a long time. That's incredibly inspiring. I want to make sure our listeners heard that because I know we're, we're pretty familiar with sort of second generation leadership, third in some cases, but fifth is really special, especially in the Western states as well. So I just can't thank you enough for your family's commitment to the sector, not only to your residents, but also improve quality in all directions. So I think that's an incredible story. Tell us a about, about maybe marquee in particular, and then I'd like to get into the discussion about value-based care. We today operate 27 facilities, 21 are nursing homes, six are assisted living and or memory care. Most of our facilities are in the state of Oregon, but we also have one facility in Northern California in Redding and two large facilities in North Las Vegas. And we have about uh, 1,500 residents and about 2,500 employees in that particular business line. Not only Pacific Northwest, but stretching in some Western states as well. Now, this uh, podcast series that we've got going this year is kind of focused on this new emerging, maybe in some cases not so new, but but accelerated emerging discussion on value-based care. You know, value-based care can mean something a little bit different to each person as you talk about it and how broad it can be defined. Uh, I've heard you talk about these creative reimbursement funding opportunities what does value-based care mean to you? And say a little bit about that. When you first start thinking about value-based care, you know, the, the definition's pretty simple. The definition is payment for services that's tied to quality and or outcomes versus what most of us looking back have grown up in a world in this country where we receive payment just based on providing the service itself. And so while that definition seems simple, there are so many variations of, of what a value-based care arrangement might look like. I mean, on one extreme, I would say that a value-based care arrangement could be a half a percent to 1% of the total fee-for-service payment that might be tied to some quality benchmark. In our industry, the common one would be a hospital readmission rate. And then you could go all the way to the other extreme, which I know we'll talk about a little bit today, but for those of us that are provider operators of facilities that also have entered the Medicare Advantage space, 
and have our own institutional special needs plan or ISNIP, we're actually taking risk on the entire healthcare dollar. So at the highest level, we would say that the entire 100% of what gets paid is at risk now that we're actually in the space of having our own insurance plan. And then there are myriads of other methods in between. And we're going to get to some of those other uh, opportunities as we talk to the guests throughout the year. I'd love to focus on your your role specifically with your iSNP because you're one of the first companies in the United States to create a provider-owned iSNP or institutional special needs insurance plan. So tell our listeners what an iSNP is exactly as, as you have in your model. An institutional special needs plan is really a niche Medicare Advantage plan. So at the highest level, it's no different than a Blue Cross Blue Shield Medicare Advantage plan or a United Healthcare Medicare Advantage plan. We all function under the same regulatory environments in terms of how we manage. But there are really two distinct differences between an ISNIP and a traditional Medicare Advantage plan. The first one being that all of our members have to meet a definition of needing 90 days or greater of skilled nursing care. Whereas in a traditional MA plan, the only real requirement is that you have to be over the age of 65. And so that's one distinction. The other main distinction is all of our members are housed in long-term care facilities, whereas traditional Medicare Advantage plans will market their plan to anyone that's over 65 within the counties that they get approved. So two very specific things that make the plans very, very different, and yet we all function under the same regulatory environment. Really interesting. So say a little about your you know, that thought process back then when you created AgeRight, you know, because there are a lot of operators right now, right now that contract with an outside entity to come in and provide the services. You all decided to bring in a house and take the 100% risk on yourself. What was that process, thought process like back then? It would have been about 2000, late four, 2014, early 2015. We actually went live with our plan on January 1 of 2017. But back then, which is now almost 10 years ago, there were really two drivers that got us motivated or interested in this concept. By far and away, the biggest was recognizing that we needed to improve and upgrade the quality of our physician and or nurse practitioner services in our facilities. It was rare that we saw a physician or an MP in our facilities providing services to our residents. We had the traditional medical director relationship and every now and then a physician might come in. But we wanted to upgrade that for a number of reasons. One, to be able to improve the experience for the residents that we cared for, which also hopefully would translate to an improvement in market share as well. But also, we saw the uh, ongoing movement and, and growth in value-based payment arrangements that we believe that these physicians and NPs in our buildings could have a very positive impact on, i.e., again, the hospital readmission rate. So the desire to upgrade that came with challenges at the time because the economic model for just providing physician services is a tough one in a long-term care facility in terms of how physicians get paid. We saw the ISNIP as a way to provide some economics and some dollars from that insurance plan to help cover the cost of these clinicians, these physicians and NPs. And so that was one driver. The other driver that got us motivated was that we had a belief that by having physician and NP presence in our buildings and improving the experience, it potentially could have an impact on our long-term liver occupancy. 
So those residents that are going to be in the facility until they pass, um, we thought that it would have a positive impact. And, and we, we have been in an environment probably more aggressively out here in Oregon than other parts of the country, but, but similar, we've been seeing uh, declining occupancy with our long-term living base. And so we saw it as an opportunity to potentially uh, improve that and have it go the other way. When you talk about the work you've done there with AgeRight, you created an insurance company, right? I mean, that's that's the big step to be taken there, which is you had to go to the State Department of Insurance and say a little about those challenges and those those major investments on that side. Starting your own ISNIP or Medicare Advantage plan, and again, it's no different than the big plans. It is a big task. So for anyone out there in the industry who's considering it, while I highly recommend it, um, be mindful of the fact that it's a big lift on the front side. So you are needing to submit applications and get approved with the individual state's Department of Insurance. With that comes varying levels of uh, initial capital requirements to be able to fund the insurance company, but also to just work through all the regulations on that front. In addition to that, you have to submit an application to CMS at the federal level, get approved for that, which probably the biggest lift there is you need to build out an entire provider network as part of submitting that that application. And so it is a big, big lift. In the long run, it's well worth it. But uh, to be mindful, it's uh, it's not it's no small task for sure. I'm just curious because I, I have a background in insurance law and I used to do some work here in the state of Indiana. Did you have to file in a, did you have to create an insurance company in every state in which you operate or there's some cross-state line reciprocal agreements? No. You know, every state has its own minimum capital requirements. Sometimes the minimum capital can be reciprocal. I would tell you that we, we only function our ISNIP in Oregon, so we haven't formally gone into any of the other states. Unfortunately for us, Oregon has, if not the highest, one of the highest minimum capital requirements, which is $2.5 million. So for a plan our size, that was an unfortunate added uh, challenge for us versus other states that might be 250 or 500,000 as the minimum. Well, we're going to talk to some other folks later this year. There may be smaller operators that still were find ways to kind of get into this world, either some collaborative work or in other states. And so for the listeners out there, they're thinking about the heavy lift on the front end. Uh, there are some other options out there, but I think as you're hearing today, the benefits for Marquee in particular have far outweighed uh, the front end investment. What kind of data do you track with your ISNIP? What are your, what are your goals and what kind of data do you track? Probably the most important metric that we track would be hospital episodes. So of the number of members that we have in the plan, how many hospital episodes are we incurring? The benchmark that we strive for is to be at a 400 episodes per year for a thousand, for a thousand members. Our plan has actually experienced less than that. So we've done a really good job of exceeding our, our metric. Also, in terms of the economic viability of an ISNIP for a provider-owned ISNIP that has low membership, um, it is without a doubt the most important metric. You get up in the 1,000 to 1,500 episodes per 1,000 members, the economics just don't work. The most important, uh, the other would be um, making sure that we are managing risk scores for each of the individual members. Since that risk score for a member drives the actual premium that we receive from CMS, it's important that we make sure that we get the right score in place. If not, our actual revenues coming in will be deficient and make it harder to be viable. So there are others, uh, man managing prescriptions, managing membership penetration, what percentage of residents in, in buildings that we have the plan in, 
um, are actually members and are we exceeding our metrics, things of that nature. Well, I know how data-driven you and your brother are, and so I knew you'd, you'd be right on top of all those metrics. What are you looking ahead the second half this year into 2024? What are, you, what are your goals and objectives for your ISTAM? It's really not much of a deviation from, at least after the first couple, three years of the plan, we were very focused on our own marquee facilities in the first couple of years. Since we have actually created relationships with peers in our space here, competitors in some instances, where we're actually marketing the plan in their facilities. And so our goals are to continue to grow with intention, grow with providers that we think our plan and their operating style is a nice fit. And together we can get the outcomes to improve the experience for the residents that, and, and things that we need to be successful. And so continued intentional growth with operators in the markets that we're in, continue to be able to affect our operating metrics that we want to hit to achieve our, our results. For those competitors in your market that would allow your ISIP to come into your work, what's their upside? What's their benefit there to allow you to come in and work with their, their residents? So number one, they'll get the benefit of the physician and nurse practitioner services that we would bring in to their facilities that they may not have in their, their facilities right now. Important to no remember that the members in our plan and our facilities are long-term livers because they have to meet that 90-day test. So all of the short-stay episode admissions, the ones that are traditionally covered by Medicare or traditional MA, they're not members in our plan. But one of the other benefits that can happen with docs and NPs coming into their building is that group of people can also see their short-stay residents if they want. It helps some of the value-based metrics and experience for those as well. So that's certainly a benefit. Another benefit is um, there, there can be a quality incentive arrangement between the health plan and the facility and that if the facility reaches those quality requirements to be able to receive a quality incentive payment, um, there can be some economics back to that plan as well. Well, for our listeners who, again, are thinking about ways to work more collaboratively with, with those in their own marketplace, this may be a nice way to do that. Now, you've also launched some other versions of iSNPs, an IE SNP and a CSNP, which are really early stage. But maybe for our listeners, say a little bit about what these other iSNP, CSNP, DSNP plans, what are their individual characteristics like? Think of an ISNIP as providing a product to residents that live in skilled nursing facilities, dual, a lot of dual eligibles, Medicare, Medicaid covered seniors, whether in skilled nursing or assisted living. That tends to be the primary market for ISNIPs. An IE SNP, as simply put as I can, is a plan that allows a lot more flexibility in terms of our ability to market to a private pay assisted living or memory care type resident. It's a plan that provides more flexibility in the types of supplemental benefits that we might be able to offer to that population that possibly an ISNF population may not have as much need for. It's a plan that maybe provides more flexibility in the premium we can charge. And so it's a way for us to attract some residents that maybe we're not attracting in our ISNIP. The CSNIP um, is completely different, but we're doing that for trying to attract into the independent retirement housing world or CCRCs. And a CSNIP, different than an IE SNIP or ISNIP, where you just need to meet a test of 90 days of care or more, a CSNIP is focused on specific conditions specific chronic conditions that a senior or a resident has, if they have one of the conditions, 
that the CSNP is approved for, they become eligible to be on the plan. And so different than an ISNP or an IE SNP where we couldn't market those plans, independent retirement community, a CSNP we can, at least for those residents that have one of the chronic conditions we're approved for. So we're excited about the CSNP because again, it helps us to launch into a long-term care facility environment, independent retirement that we've not been able to to date. And then a DSNP might focus specifically on a specific disease state, is that correct? While that's a, a good thought, the DSNP is more around dual eligible. You have to be a dual, dual eligible, both Medicare and Medicaid, to be in a DSNP. And it's also a function of where states that have their Medicaid bucket managed by managed care versus direct to the facilities, a DSNP has the ability to control both buckets, the Medicaid bucket as well as the Medicare bucket when they go out and market their services to potential members. Well, thanks for walking us down that path, those other options out there, because, again, we're going to talk throughout the year with some other provider groups inside the continuum. Because I think when people think about population health management, they think just Medicare, Medicaid and big public uh, government payer sources. But there are opportunities for independent living, assisted living, CCRCs, senior housing, also participate in different ways through population health management. So thanks for walking us through that. Hey, in addition to your role there, your, your companies, you also play a really interesting role at the national level, where you're chair of the HCA NCAL Fund Connection to the Rock Management Council. I want to hear a little bit about the genesis of that council and kind of the goals of it, but I, but I sense is it probably an effort to try and coordinate some work among all of the provider-owned ISNPs throughout the country to try and do some advocacy and some data sharing. Yeah, I would, yeah, the council was created a few years ago. Certainly one of the prongs, the important pieces for the need for the council was the initiation and excitement and growth in provider, you know, operator, provider-owned special needs plans like ISNPs and such. So that certainly is one or any special needs plan growth by operators, whether DSNPs, CSNP, whatever. In addition to that, the council is charged with also making sure that we're staying in tune with Medicare, traditional Medicare Advantage issues that might come up related to how we work with some of the big players uh, as providers. And then the other would be any value-based payment arrangements that CMS Medicare directly might have um, in place, whether it's the Medicare Shared Savings Program, ACOs, you know, all those other programs that they've created, the council is committed to uh, staying on top of those. I will say to date, the large, large majority of our time has been spent on the provider-owned special needs plan space. How many provider-owned networks, or excuse me, ISIMs are there throughout the country? Always changing, but I believe the number is in the 50 to 60 range. And when we started in 2017, I believe we were maybe the fifth or sixth to go live, us being age right at that time. It's my opinion that if not for the pandemic, there would be over 100 right now. But the pandemic, for probably some obvious reasons, unfortunately slowed down the interest of operators because they were focused on other things. Where do you think all this is going? You know, kind of looking ahead 15 or 20 years, what does it look like in the future, or maybe even provider-owned SNPs in particular? When we have this discussion, it's really important to remember that Medicare and Medicare Advantage to date has been insurance that has paid for acute services for seniors. Seniors that have acute issues um, need to go to the hospital or need to go to a nursing home for a, a, a period of time, pays for prescriptions, things like that. It doesn't pay for housing. It doesn't pay for environments where a senior needs to go to a facility. 
to cover the room and board. When we talk about what does it look like in the future, um, it's important to understand those differences. I would say that you're going to continue to see growth in bringing that room and board bucket on the Medicaid side with the uh, services side of Medicare to where the same party has control of both buckets. Anything that we do in value-based payment arrangements, the ability to drive the greatest success is if the actual operator, the provider, is also responsible and in control of the actual insurance dollar. Anytime you get multiple parties in a value-based arrangement, or the more parties that you get, in my opinion, the less potential or success that you have because you have differing objectives and, 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 and goals. And so I believe firmly that you're gonna see a lot more Medicare, Medicaid combining the bucket you're gonna see Medicare Advantage plans that control millions of lives of over 65. I believe you're gonna to continue to see them try to make arrangements with third-party companies mm -hmm. that do a much better job of managing the health of the populations that we care for in our buildings today or are about to care for. I believe that that's gonna have a dramatic change on how long-term care facility operators have sought to get market share because those third parties are going to be much better at aligning with the providers that do the best job. Well, thanks for sharing those thoughts, Steve. I think for our listeners, they can probably see why I wanted to have you on today, not only for the work you've done there, Marquis, through your ISNIP provider-owned um, uh, program, but also your, your national leadership with the Public Health Management Council and your thoughts about the future. So this has been a really fascinating conversation today. Hey, before I let you go, I've got two questions. I always like to make sure we kind of delve into the side of our guests that are kind of outside their normal work scope and things they're passionate about. In addition to being a multi-generational uh, long-term care provider family, you're also, you also come from a deep racing family. Talk a little about you, you know your, your history with your family and, and the racing world and maybe a fun racing story you experienced recently. Both my, my brother Phil and my dad, who's Phil Sr., have a, a very courageous uh, makeup I'm the conservative accountant. That's why I'm the CFO. But my brother and I grew up as kids with a father that was very, uh, did a lot of scary types of things, uh, fast boats. Uh, my dad has raced airplanes uh, for 40 years. And both he and my brother, Phil, started racing cars in the mid-1990s. It was just a natural fit. Due to a friend of mine that actually saw my dad I saw my brother race. He convinced me to do a racing school with him, even though I had no intention of getting into it. Uh, so we did that, and I had my first car race in 2007. Uh, I've been racing for the last 16 years. I don't know if I have any great stories. I would just say that one of the best things about being able to race cars, being fortunate enough to race cars, is you get to go to a lot of amazing racetracks. Um, and we do have some amazing racetracks in this country, with my favorite being the new Formula One track in Austin, which is Coda. Um, that I've raced a couple of three times. So it's a really fun hobby. I feel blessed at 57 to still be able to get out there and be competitive. So. And you had a race recently because we talked about it a little bit. And uh, we shared, maybe in my hometown of Indianapolis, Indiana, the racing history and legends that have been to the Oval Track here at the 500. I actually went to the first F1 race here in Indianapolis 500 track many years ago when the race lasted all of about 17 laps because the tires kept blowing. So I think that's when Austin pushed ahead and built that track. So I got to get out there and see it. One more quick question. I, I learned also when we met up last year that you have a really fun connection to the rock band Kiss. Uh, maybe tell our listeners a little bit about that. Fun stuff. Total irony, but uh, a good friend of mine that lives in the same community that I live in here in Portland, his brother happens to be Tommy Thayer, 
who's the current lead guitarist of KISS. And through that relationship, we've been able to enjoy concerts and uh, get to know the entire band. The two times that we've been uh, involved and gone to concerts, uh, Motley Crue has also been on the list. And so we've been able to meet all of them as well. I will tell you that it's, uh, I'm sure this picture will make sense, but uh, when eight to 10 of us at the time, I would say yuppie types show up to a Kiss Motley Crue concert. Uh, it's pretty obvious to see uh, that we don't fit in, but uh, it's fun to meet them. They're all great. What you see is not what you get. They're great guys, and uh, it, it was a good experience. Thanks for sharing that. Again, I always want to make sure our listeners get to know the human side of our guests as well. And so you've got some great stories. And I always say that the Fog Brothers are two of the most interesting people in the, in the country. And so I think your, your listeners are getting a little flavor for that. So. Well, Steve, I can't thank you enough for your time today. And, you know, this sounds kind of hokey, but I really can't thank you enough for all you do for your residents and your staff. And, of course, your work at the national level to make sure that we're improving quality in all directions for our current and future residents and staff. So thanks for all you do. And it's been a pleasure to have you on today. Thanks, Scott. I, I, uh, I appreciate those nice words. And uh, Phil and I will keep fighting the fight for our industry for as long as we're able to. So thanks. And for our listeners, uh, really appreciate you tuning in today. Be sure to check back in when we have future leaders in our industry that are doing very interesting work in these very interesting times. This is First.